As you may know, we lost one of our earliest members this week. Octavia Taylor passed away at age 92. Her mother had been an organizer of St. Peter's and Octavia was in the very first confirmation class held here. And while she spent most of her life in Camden, Arkansas, and was very active at St. John's there, we are blessed to have her family that remains a central part of our community here. And what struck me about this is how close we are to our beginnings. That in the space of a single well-lived life, we see our own origin. We see our growth into three busy buildings, an education wing, and a nice parcel of city land. We see our impact in Conway with a food bank, an interfaith council, and countless outreach efforts. We see our work in Guatemala and Syria and wherever else we witness injustice. That in the space of a single well-lived life, we see how much has been accomplished. And there's no question this place has been special. It's one of only 26 or so parishes that can lay claim to a presiding bishop, John Allen. In the Episcopal Church's 230-year history, it's produced a bishop, Greg Rickle, a dean of students at a major seminary, Andrew Hibble, and our own canon to the ordinary, Jason Alexander, along with countless seminarians, many of whom are serving in parishes across Arkansas and the country, that in the space of a single well-lived life, St. Peter's has left its mark on, a church, on the church here in Arkansas and everywhere. But while we are so close to our beginnings, it feels more like we're somewhere further, somewhere closer to a middle or a midpoint of our journey. The Gospel this week from John is the first in a series of readings that are also known as the Bread of Life Discourses. This means that for the next five or six weeks, you'll find Peggy or Linda or me up here trying to find new ways to talk about bread without leaving you all thinking about the food we have in the lobby instead of the scripture. And the first reading, the feeding of 5,000, sets the stage with a literal feasting on bread and fish. We find Jesus and the disciples also at something of a midpoint in their journey. In fact, of the seven signs Jesus performs in John's Gospel, this reading is the fourth and fifth, placing it squarely in the middle. These signs in John, like the turning of water into wine at Cana or giving sight to the blind man, are sometimes called miracles because they are examples of Jesus disrupting the laws of nature. Cynthia Kittredge, a renowned Bible scholar who just so happens to be the dean of the seminary I just graduated from and a, and a good friend, suggests that this interpretation of sign as miracle is not what the writer of John intended, that the cosmic sleight of hand that miracle suggests is too facile, too superficial. In Mark's Gospel, these signs are called deeds of power, and they define where God is at work. When Jesus exercises demons, it shows that God is battling Satan, and Satan is being defeated. By the time John writes about signs, they have become expressions of faith. For John, God's work is fulfilled in Jesus. And the signs are written about, as he says at the end of the Gospel, so that you may believe. For John's community and for us, these signs are meant to deepen our faith, our trust in God. So here we are, 
at a midpoint of sorts of signs in the gospel, and we find Jesus appearing to play something of a trick on the disciples. He sees the crowd approaching and asks how they are going to feed such a multitude. Philip, the pragmatic one, says it's impossible in very specific and overwhelming financial terms. Clearly a CPA in his blood. Six months wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Andrew jumps in with the offer of the boys two fish and five loaves of barley, but also shows its limits. But what are they among so many people, he says. Jesus invites the crowd to be seated on the grassy area. He gives thanks, and then he distributes the bread and fish to all those who want it. They ate their fill, and twelve baskets of leftover bread remained. This sign is often interpreted as a miracle of generosity, that the crowd, in seeing the generosity of the young boy, is moved to share their own stash of food they had secretly brought along for the journey that Jesus somehow guilts the assembled to share by using a public example of a young child. I think this is too focused on the how of the sign and not the sign itself. We are faced, I believe, with two different mentalities, two different mindsets in this reading. The first might be called a mindset of scarcity, shared by the disciples as they try to figure out how to feed so many. And the second, a mindset of abundance, demonstrated by Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000. A mindset of scarcity is caught up in how something might get done. A mindset that later doubts that it is Jesus walking on the water. Meanwhile, a mindset of abundance, Jesus attends to the needs of the many, the hungry crowd, so that not a crumb is wasted. The focus is on the need and not the mechanism. The mindset trusts that God will deliver. It may not know how and in what form, but it's fully trusting, fully faithful that God will deliver. This mindset gives thanks even before the sign takes place. One of the most surprising things I've seen in my short time here at St. Peter's is the relative scarcity of our day-to-day -day financial operations. Now this is not to say we're in any sort of trouble, quite the opposite. The overall financial picture of the church is very strong. But what's surprising is, in the midst of this beautiful sanctuary, a remodeled Morgan House, an historic parish across the way, we often struggle to make payroll. That Mike, our esteemed and exhausted bookkeeper, is frequently forced to choose which bills to pay at the end of the month, based on how friendly we are with our debt holder and who might be willing to wait a few weeks. That a place with such an historic role in the church, that is busy every day with all kinds of activities, that has nurtured and developed so many shining stars, that this place struggles to make ends meet is, well, surprising. I have I've found myself wondering if St. Peter's is a place with a huge heart and an equally large mission, but our giving doesn't match our heart, so maybe we can't accomplish our mission. And then I think about the disciples, about Philip and Andrew and their scarcity mindset, that I am, like them, too caught up in the how of getting things done, how payroll gets met, how bills get paid, and not trusting enough in the mission itself, not trusting that God will somehow deliver, not having an abundance mindset, not having enough faith. And it makes me wonder, 
What might a fully formed abundance mindset look like for us, for St. Peter's? How might our food pantry in an abundance mindset go from helping the poor twice a month to helping whenever the need is? How might we fill our buildings throughout the week with not just 12-step and servanthood and Bible study classes, but maybe a yoga class or two, or a community meeting place for our neighbors, or an after-school gathering for the adjacent junior high? How might we not just be a refuge from the darkness out there that we talk about, but a force for change, a blinding, unmistakable, unmissable light in that darkness? How might our mission match our heart and our actions? How might we focus on the need and trust, trust, trust that God will deliver? I think it means we may need to get out of our comfort zone, extend ourselves a little more than we're used to. Now, I didn't, when I started out writing the sermon, I didn't intend it to turn into a stewardship sermon. You're going to hear enough about that in a few months as we get ready for next year. So watch this space. But I have a personal story about getting out of my comfort zone and its result. You see, for much of my life, I'd felt a calling to the church, but it seemed like it never worked out. I'd get caught up in work or personal matters, or something would go wrong with the church, and I'd be back at square one. And about 10 years ago or so, I I decided to start tithing, giving 10% of my salary to the church. I wouldn't make any other don- I wouldn't stop making other donations, but I'd first give to the church. It made me very uncomfortable. I wasn't sure how I'd pull it off, but I was going to do it. Soon after, doors started opening for me. In fact, I know there's a very direct line from my making that decision to my being up here in front of you today. That my discomfort, my not knowing was the space that Holy Spirit, that God needed to start doing God's work. I look back now and realize that I had to take on an abundance mindset to really trust God before God could really start doing what needed to be done. How much we feel called to give to the church is a matter between us and God. I'm not asking you to tithe, though that wouldn't hurt, and I'm sure Mike would be supportive of it. I am suggesting that if we all get a little uncomfortable, a little beyond ourselves and the time or the talent or, yes, even the treasure that we give, if we adopt that abundance mentality that Jesus shows us, that maybe, just maybe, the huge heart we have that leads us on this big mission will happen. That as we reach something of a midpoint in our journey, our growing, healthy, God-filled journey, Our abundance mindset will make us unstoppable. Let us see the signs in today's Gospels as the markers of faith that they are. And we are called to give thanks and are invited to sit on the grass and feast. Amen.